how do we find out how long this is? Hold on. We're on, a, we're on, a, we're on an hour and I'm trying to make it so the moment. Oh, okay. I was trying to make it there so that we could tell where this conversation was going to be. On the... <laughs> I, I just listened to it through. Don't okay. worry. book club my name is jamie and this is i am charlie the podcast where we review <laughs> gothic literature and literature that we consider gothic and talk about how crazy it is uh this week we have uh matthew lewis's the monk yay i'm excited about this i'm one. excited as well um slightly bigger than uh, the cast of Atranto, but our notes are sparser. So <laughs> we, pro- we promised luck. that we'd have more, we'd be more prepared and we just haven't no. been <laughs> at all. No. So this is going to be, this is going to be interesting, but I, I am excited. Jamie, do you, what, what were your impressions of the monk? Let's start there. Um, I... Well, I've got the uh, Oxford World's Classics uh, edition that we bought from my university uh, bookshop. Um, it looks far older than it actually is because I dropped my dinner all over it and sort of <laughs> half dropped it in the bath as well. Um, I'm just terrible at reading, uh, taking time aside to actually read. I always just take read a book whilst I'm doing general activities. But I like the cover of it. It's got a very spooky Ambrosio. The uh, the eponymous monk on the, the front monk. of it. The monk. <laughs> the monk. Um, I was very excited to read this because it's like the, you know, it's like the granddaddy of gothic fiction. Fiction? Fiction. It is, yeah. It's kind of like follows on from the legacy of the castle of Otranto and goes even further and is more bizarre and grotesque and hilarious um and yeah i really enjoyed reading it so it was I. a lot of fun do you did you think it was surprising i'm always interested in this because i always read the plot of a book before i read it and i never do that so i have never had the experience of being surprised by things but it seemed like people were surprised i was surprised i was very surprised by um when you when we read the plot out viewers <laughs> viewers listeners uh, you'll get a sense of what i'm talking about but um i was very surprised when rosario was like father i am a woman i don't know where the confession that uh rosario was making was going but i certainly didn't think that that was the conclusion that we were arriving to i was also shocked by um I think especially coming from the castle of Otranto where everything is just so almost cartoonish in in its horror to get some you know some some pretty grotesque happenings yeah, was it's exciting of, it has all this, it has all the same elements of kind of like ridiculous kind of humor but yeah. it just goes so far it does oh it has the trappings and there's definitely a few sort of very i think intentionally comedic moments <laughs> a lot of very um, funny moments or maybe not. Yeah, no, I would. I would say intentionally. Community yeah, violence. like there's Laurenella. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I do. I do think it's scarier, far scarier than the Castle of Otranto. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 got a. It's much darker. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of like 
you know, it was kind of written for the sake of like being so kind of like salacious and mm-hmm. you know, it was banned and then it was, you know, allowed to be published again, but like it was like, you know, all the words were changed and like, you know, desire suddenly became like, oh, his emotions. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like so salacious and so I really would radical. S- I would summarize my, uh, especially having finished it, I believe, yes, that it is a sensationalist work of. Uh, uh, anti-Catholic re- uh, rhetoric, but so much more as well. <laughs> yeah. But also so, so much more. more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shall we dive into the plot? Let's. Let's try, let's try. Hi there, future Charlie here, just letting you know that uh, we tried and we failed, and uh, I have to spend the past two hours attempting to detangle and salvage some kind of understandable narrative out of the absolute fucking mess that we recorded last night, and still ended up with a whole half an hour of absolute nonsensical drivel. Uh, So to spare you from that, I'm just popping in here to provide you with a much condensed, uh, much more sane summary of the plot uh, for the sake of time, uh, entertainment, uh, my sanity. Uh, You will unfortunately miss moments like this. Jacinta. Is it Donna Jacinta? Um, I might be making that up. It doesn't really matter because she's not really relevant to the story other than Jacinta. Jacinta. Other than the fact that she goes to get Ambrosio and she's like... Antonia has seen this ghost of her dead mother. You need to come and do an exorcism. She's seen it too, Jacintha. Jacintha's oh, yeah, like, like, I've seen it too. And she had like snakes for hairs and was screaming about the chicken wing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's such a bizarre. We will, maybe, I don't know if we can even clarify that. <laughs> and this. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And then Matilda kind of gets out this magic mirror where we see a very, oh God, it's just so weird and pornographic. This weird scene where Antonia is in the bath and then a bird like mm-hmm. nestles between her boobs and she's like, ha and like, very and, 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 and um, this is too much for Ambrosia. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. And like, <laughs> I have to have this sexy bird woman. And this? Lorenzo, Loren- Don Lorenzo, who Antonia's seeing, has a sister who is in a convent in Madrid. And she. We don't gets have pregnant. a. Listen, we, for, <laughs> for plot A, like Charlie wrote out our whole thing. And then plot B is just plot B. And this. Um who happens to be related to Antonia in some way, but that's that's neither here nor there, because it's all so weird and interconnected. Um, oh, fuck, we didn't talk about how Satan at the end was like, oh, by the way... Uh, you're related. You're related to, to Antonia. Antonia. Yeah. I completely so that's forgot about that, that. that. This also happened. Briary? No, the, to, the, to the convent. To... To... Um, to... Rescue Agnes slash... Kill. Right, are you not going to talk about how prior to this? Oh my god, there's so much to say. Where the prioress, the abbess, is torn to pieces in the streets. Believe me when I say you're welcome. So let's get this over with. The novel was written in 1796 and is set in the 18th century, which is relevant because, unlike last episode's book, The Castle of Otranto, the novel isn't looking back to a medieval gothic past. This is probably because much of the action in the novel was inspired by Lewis's own experience in the French Revolution. We don't really talk about much about this backstory, uh, 
when we come to discuss the actual book, but I just thought I'd pop it in here uh, for some for some context and some relevance. Uh, it also takes place in Madrid, Spain, notably a very Catholic country with a reputation for hot-tempered, passionate dispositions at the time. And if you think Lewis was trying to make some kind of point here uh, by setting uh, this book in a Catholic country, in a Catholic setting, in a country that was kind of known to be quite passionate and dramatic and hot-blooded, you would be absolutely right. The novel is somewhat convoluted in structure, comprising a main plot, a subplot which is extensive enough to be a novel in its own right, and a sub-subplot which constitutes the backstory of the subplot. Uh, so we will be discussing all three of these plot lines uh, in our discussion of the novel, but right now you only need to know about the first two, and I've tried to separate them out for the purposes of just general comprehension. Uh, So the main plot centres around the eponymous monk, Ambrosio, a charismatic monk-slash-preacher. No, Lewis didn't have a comprehensive grasp of the structures of the Catholic Church, and it tells the story of his fall from grace as he is lured to sin by the devious and dastardly Matilda, a young woman who he meets after she disguised herself as the novitiate Rosario in order to be closer to Ambrosio, or so she claims. In the process, he commits all sorts of heinous acts, including lots of disappointing sex with Matilda, the murder of Elvira, an impoverished widow, and the rape and murder of her daughter, the beautiful and virtuous Antonia, before she is able to marry her true love, the handsome cavalier Don Lorenzo. In the end, his evil deeds are discovered and he is condemned to death. Matilda arrives and in her final attempt to push Ambrosio to sin, tries to convince him to sell his soul to the devil, which he eventually agrees to uh, in order to save himself from his execution. Satan arrives, yes, Satan makes an appearance in this book, and reveals that Antonia was in fact his sister and Elvira his mother in one final layer of total incestuous scenery, and then pushes him off the cliff, pointing out that Ambrosio only asked to be released from jail, not to have a long or prosperous life, uh, before his soul is damned to eternal hell. The book ends, and Ambrosio's body is left to be pecked by buzzards for seven days and seven nights, calling on the thematic imagery that is meant to be evocative of the Prometheus myth. The subplot focuses on Don Lorenzo's sister Agnes, a nun in the local convent, and her lover Don Raymond. Agnes is discovered by Ambrosio early in the book to be pregnant by Don Raymond. Ambrosio calls for her to be punished by the prioress, and though he initially demonstrates uh, a crisis of conscience and later remorse for his ill treatment of her, he ultimately does nothing to help her and doesn't really feature again as a part of this story, uh, leaving Agnes to be locked up by the evil prioress and left for dead. There is some kind of convoluted back and forth between the evil prioress and Don Raymond and Don Lorenzo as they try to rescue Agnes and discover her fate. At one point, the prioress tells them that Agnes has died, which leads them to incite an angry mob of common people who attack the convent and violently murder the prioress for her crimes. But it all works out in the end uh, because they eventually find Agnes alive and she gets married to Don Raymond and they live happily ever after, even though her baby, uh, which she has given birth to at this point, has died and is now rotting in her arms when they find her it's a gross description but that really is the sanitized version and that's basically the end there you have it a brief summary of matthew lewis's the monk and now let's enjoy the rest of the podcast without all that fuckery now already so we'll <laughs> get gonna into try and keep that briefer mm-hmm. and we've failed miserably so we don't really okay, we'll talk about the c plot later because yeah we'll talk about it later for now 
let's just talk about how bonkers that structure is. Mm -hmm. There are stories within stories within stories. You know, we only gave you the A and the B plot. The C plot, which is like the whole backstory of the Agnes Raymond thing, is like a whole movie in itself. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a whole thing. And it's, you kind of, it goes on for like three chapters and you kind of forget what book you're reading. (laughs) Because it's just, it's so long and detailed and kind of I wouldn't say laborious because it's quite enjoyable to read but it's like it's it's just a whole other story within mm-hmm. a story within a story and it's kind of weird that it's given like that much time I mean yeah it contextualizes but also like I think especially in certain got like the attention that the uh, plot gives to certain elements is just bizarre it's like you know how like the whole Elvira uh, and how Antonia came to be in this church in Madrid is kind of just like expositional dialogue from her aunt in the first page. But you read <laughs> yeah. it, and you're like, what? What? What, what the fuck is going on? But then on? you get how Raymond and uh, you know, he, having yeah, and such random bits of it irrelevant as well. Like that bit, the Elvira backstory, it kind of feels irrelevant and then turns out to be relevant. And then there's this whole chapters long sequence where Don Lorette. No, Raymond is mm-hmm. telling his whole backstory and you're just like, what part of this has to do with anything? And it turns out not a lot of it does. Yeah. And the all like it could be summarized basically saying like he met Agnes while he was traveling. Mm-hmm. She thought she was hot. They fell in love. They were gonna run away to be married. And then she was put in an nunnery and they couldn't. And that's basically the story. And it takes three chapters to get even to the point where she they're killed ready their mum being born and they were like, This girl's gotta go in a nunnery stat. Yeah. To appease God. So it's obviously a very how should we say it like it's a very salacious there's a lot of drama there's a lot of twists and turns ghosts and ghosts and spooky things everything kind of every sentence kind of ends with a bang and like it's 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 so kind of not like a sort of dry old like philosophical work like it's it's very Juicy. It's juicy. It's a juicy. It's, it's a juicy read. Juicy. It is a juicy read. Um, and probably the most, the most, the juiciest of all the bits in the book are probably the characters. So should we ta- start by talking about Old Ambrosio, the monk for which this book was named? We should. What do you think of Ambrosio? Um. Obviously, terrible. <laughs> um, I think that his constant sort of like back and forth, where he commits this absolutely obscenely horrible deed, and then he's immediately either filled with like, he's both immediately filled with like disgust and regret directed towards himself, and then disgust at the subject of which he has committed this deed with slash upon. Um, he's always like oh my god this you know Matilda is so gross like Antonia is so gross like I can't believe I did that like I can't believe I did that and then he goes and does something worse like like, a chapter later rapes Antonia he's like oh it was your fault for being so hot how could you blame me when you're so hot and it's like and then he like and then he you know feeds her and cries with her and is like I can never let her go now that she can identify me to um, all of Madrid, I can never let her go. It's it's, a, it's quite upsetting to read, actually. Um, they cry together, 
and she's like I promise I won't say anything <laughs> like I, I promise I won't say anything and I'm you know like let me just quit this chamber like let me just quit this crypt I'll never see sun again um, and he's like um, no can do like I need to maintain my um, status as the top the biggest and bestest monk in madrid the biggest and bestest monk in madrid because yeah it's it's interesting because when we're introduced to him we're kind of introduced to him through the eyes of the very innocent mm-hmm. uh, antonia. Uh, antonia and you know the the whole first chapter is kind of basically she and her aunt lorinella uh have just arrived in madrid and they go into church and the church is packed and there's nowhere to sit and this is because everyone has come out to see this amazing preacher ambrosio who is like giving these amazing sermons that are really inspiring and so everyone's people are coming from far and wide to hear him speak and there's this whole bit where they're talking they meet don lorenzo and they're asking why there are so many people there and he's explaining this to them and he's kind of like oh singing lorenzo singing Ambrosio's praises oh my god so many names singing Ambrosio's praises um and kind of like there's a lot of very I might talk about this more later but like very um idealizing language around Ambrosio like he's described as like oh he's so he's so pure he's so good he's so innocent um like he has never been lived outside the monastery. He's just a meat channel for God. He's just, yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> a meat channel for God. Like, he's never been tainted by the outside world. Like, he's so pure, he doesn't even know how women's bodies are different from men's bodies. That's, that's Antonia. Fucking, no, that's Antonia. no, that's what he says. That's that's why, because it's because he's like, because he's like, he's so pure that he doesn't even know the difference between yeah, men and women. Yeah, that's Antonia. And then, no, no, no. And no, no. Antonia. Yeah. And, oh, no, okay. no, no, that's the thing. Because she she then demonstrates her religion. Because he's like, he, it makes him a saint that he doesn't know the difference. And she's like, she's like, oh, well, that makes me a saint too because I don't know the difference either. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God. Fucking <laughs> 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 Antonia. But, like, you know, Ambrosius kind of, like, put on this, like, pedestal and we'll talk about the kind of idolization of objects and things and people and the problematic nature of it in this novel that is highlighted later but like he's kind of like he falls so far and except he doesn't like he's seen to fall so far because people have this idea of him Mm -hmm. but in reality like you know there's that bit where he's like quite near the beginning just before he speaks to rosario where he's like oh i no one else could have like he kind of believes the hype about himself like he's kind of like no one else could have withstood temptation like i have like Mm -hmm. i no other man could possibly have been so strong as me i am so fucking good oh my god yeah and it's it's ridiculous because it's like well you haven't really resisted anything because you have exclusively lived in the monastery your whole life and then obviously as soon as he is presented with the temptation he immediately caves and so it's kind of like he spends a lot of time as well uh, uh addressing a portrait of the madonna in his room and being like i'm just attracted to you as a painting like if you as a rational woman <laughs> well, i don't know i don't and know this- what i do and i'm sure i would be not of the flesh about it. <laughs> yeah, he's very kind of like, oh, this can be like a, a sensible. I'm not attracted friendship. to the woman. I'm attracted to the painting. All the time, he's kind of trying to convince himself. You know, in, with his his relationship with these women, he's like, oh, 
like we could just be we could just have a sensible friendship and that would be enough to satisfy me and it, it, obviously it's never true mm-hmm. um but yeah like he kind of you know do, do you think do you think he does kind of fall or do you think that he was always kind of a bit of a shit and then just was given a reason to be shit (laughs) um i think that lording that much sort of authority and power on one person especially in the sense of a sort of philosophical especially in the sense of it being sort of like bestowed by god as opposed to sort of like constituted by the institution of the church which is what is really happening um i think it's both basically you know like he he's he's going around raping and murdering people by his own volition but also um he's the church has like facilitated his ability to do that and also helped really mold him into such a repressed um creature that that's where his inclination to rape and murder is coming from yeah yeah i agree that's my hot take (laughs) because he kind of says doesn't he's like oh i could have been so such a such an amazing man such an amazing male specimen Mm -hmm. if i hadn't been uh cloistered in this monastery but i have been cloistered in this monastery and you know what i'm bloody good at that too it's all fine i'm just amazing and i would be amazing in any situation and then demonstrates that he is terrible in every situation mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but yeah i think that i think despite all of that there's this very interesting thing about ambrosia which is this this incredible incredible naivety um like he like we said, like at, at the beginning, he doesn't really know the difference between men and women. And he, he's only shown when Matilda exposes her titties mm-hmm. um, when she's about to kill herself, and he's like, "Oh, oh, <laughs> what are those?" <laughs> and, like, <No>. and, <laughs> and kind of has this moment of like suddenly experiencing like lust and desire for the first time because it's the first time he's ever known what that was. I would argue that he's been ex- experiencing lust before then with the Madonna. Yeah, lusting after the Madonna in. I yeah, I think I don't think it's a, as explicit, and I don't. No, think it's certainly as, not as explicit. It's very much easier for him to ignore because it's not. He can't name it either. I suppose there's no there's no tactile. Yeah, there's no like tactile element. Um, you know, there's no yeah. actual woman. So it's just like oh, it's just because I'm so devoted to Jesus. Yeah, obviously I would love the Madonna. Yeah, but, but, clearly. But it's it's really because he finds that quite hot. Um. But yeah, no, he kind of has this really strange innocence, like where he kind of he isn't he doesn't realise that he's being manipulated. Mm. And I think Lewis does something quite clever because I think that we to an extent also don't quite know the extent to which he's being manipulated because Matilda's such a well written character. I'm kind of never really sure of what her ultimate motivations are. Like we think we know. Mm. and then there's something more behind that he is also like in sort of confused over that like when she gives him the opiate to poison and uh to poison to send antonio to sleep like he has a little moment where he drops he's dropped it into her drink and he's like oh my god wait what if this is actual poison that matilda's given me because she's jealous of antonia and wants me back like even he's very unsure of what her motivations are and like whether to trust her or not but sort of ends up doing so because his lust is so potent yeah and it's this kind of it's this very kind of 
yeah, this very innocent and naive lust where he just kind of goes after it headlong and doesn't doesn't know how to manage it because he's never experienced it before. And it's kind of it's a very destructive, very violent, very aggressive kind of mirror to um Antonia's innocence. And it's a mirror he mirrors Antonia in more ways than one not least because he's her brother but very much in the sense that like he's a long lost secret brother um, but very much in this in this way of like this just innocence which becomes like detrimental to their to their well being mm-hmm. like because Antonia you know she's like she's so innocent she's so pure she's so good and it's like she doesn't realise what's going on until it's too late because mm. she yeah, and there's like that that bit as well where they've got where she's like he comes in and she's reading her bible which he notices has been like edited edited by her by her mother elvira um to kind of protect her from all the kind of more salacious more racy bits of yeah. i of think the... that bit is like extremely uh emphatic in matthew matthew lewis being like you you kind of get where I'm going with this book. Like <laughs> he's really trying to is beat like one you of those over the head. Pornographic, <laughs> um, uh, texts in circulation. Yeah, like guys, people want to have sex. That's what that's what Lewis wanted to tell us. Mm. But yeah, no. Antonio also has this innocence and this naivety, which is constantly played upon and almost it's kind of it's to the point where it's like caricatured like mm-hmm. I think a lot of the response that I've heard from people like kind of talking about Antonia is kind of that she's just like this nothing character she's this wet blanket she's kind of I think she, it's like I think it's interesting to think about this um, female characters in terms of or in one way of thinking about them in terms of like who is supposed to be the heroine because I don't think that Antonia is supposed to be the heroine. I think she's also one of the most unifaceted, or if not the most unifaceted, out of the um, central female characters because mm. she is just so fucking innocent to the extent that it seems to have sort of like <laughs> robbed her of a lot of common sense. Yeah. And yeah. What would you say to the, this? Actually. No, let's let's ask that. We're going to talk about the rest of the women, okay? And then I'm going to ask you a question about the representation of women, okay? And see see where we where where we land with that. So, as you say, Antonia is very innocent, and also so is her love for Don Lorenzo. Don Lorenzo also another kind of something someone that people see as a sort of nothing character mm. as this kind of you know he's just there as like a stock hero as like she's there like as a stock heroine and that's kind of really juxtaposed by the contrast between her them and uh agnes and don raymond Raymond, or maybe just agnes like don raymond's also kind of a bit (laughs) like as well um but yeah like agnes who is this very sympathetically written character who she's artistic she's a bit witty she's artistic she's witty she makes a very well articulated case for herself when uh ambrosio discovers her note and is planning to condemn her she, she says, endures one of those don't like <laughs> she endures one of those yeah traumatizing uh yeah uh things i think that could happen to a human being and comes out of it you know pretty cogent and lucid and like coherent and it's like well i guess i'll get i'm getting married <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> basically yeah um 
and yeah kind of has kind of also has this kind of quite um unfortunate backstory of you know she's kind of forced into this nunnery she doesn't really want to go into this nunnery this is fundamentally a misunderstanding on, on lewis's part well maybe not a misunderstanding but like he's very much like hamming up the fact that like catholicism is like a prison agnes is kind of treated by her family when she's kind of forced into this position where she has to go into the nunnery she doesn't want to she wants to marry she wants to be with Don Lorenzo. she wants to express her love and her sexual desires in a healthy way um and she's kind of denied that by her family and by a ghost <laughs> who also wants and to express also, her desires yeah, by a family because also her aunt um falls in love with uh don raymond her aunt that she's staying with in germany and falls in love with don raymond and don raymond is like oh my because don raymond basically endears himself to her because he's trying to convince uh agnes's aunt that for him to marry agnes so he's very nice to her aunt um because the point is uh, that you know the family's very superstitious and she's been sent into the nunnery because she killed her mother well no her mother died during childbirth it wasn't actually agnes's fault obvious for obvious reasons um but when dom raymond's going to admit to um agnes's aunt that he wants to marry agnes he's like i have a confession to make and she's like so do i so do I. I love you. I love you. And he's like, this is really awkward now because I uh, was don't talking love you. about and I was you talking to your niece. I, he doesn't say that. And then she's like, oh my God, when I find out who that woman is, I'm going to tear her limb from <laughs> And Don Ray was like, oh, that's crazy. Um, she's just like another woman. She's just, um, just someone you don't need to know. She's who she just is. another woman. And then they're found out in. In, they implicate themselves i think in the way that they're standing or they're in some sort of embrace or whatever um and then she's like you're never going to be with um, agnes and raymond's like oh fuck just quit your family and agnes is like um no my dad might seem like a twat to you because <laughs> he's decided to condemn me to a nunnery forever but i still really love him so i shan't and don raymond's like uh okay um and then agnes changes her mind yeah she, she changes her mind when she realizes she will have to go to the salary she doesn't want to uh because yeah because she's kind of a spirited lively quite masculine character and mm. i want to talk about more more about that later in in relation to um ambrosia when we talk about sex and gender but like she kind of demonstrates a lot of these these um masculine qualities classical masculine qualities and classicism is another big theme in this book which and the way that we kind of understand agnes's character and the way we understand uh, antonia's character through through the guise of classicism you know and antonia's kind of like presented as this uh what she described as she described as like a hammer dryad and uh the um the venus statue with no arms mm -hmm. Um, and kind of like all of these, all of these classical motifs, which kind of represent kind of like uh, a lack of agency and kind of virginity, and you know the hammer dryad being like this this nymph, which kind of has dies when it has sex. Um, and, you know that's obviously you know because being a virgin is such a big part of her character. You know, that's obviously very relevant, but you know for agnes kind of demonstrating more kind of like masculine qualities like you know she experiences like eros and thumos and acts on those and you know comes up with this mad scheme to like 
break away from her family and mm-hmm. like it doesn't work out but like and she just again when she tries to escape from from the nunnery again like she has this kind of like just real really real like spirited thumotic drive mm-hmm. um which it, and also when she ambrosia is, is really lacking yeah when raymond uh basically infiltrates the garden or the grave or the cemetery or something like that to um meet her she's like I'm just she wants to stay away from him like wants wants to stay away from him no this is actually after actually ignore that I've just said that what happens <laughs> is they start meeting up he explains to her the situation that uh how they how they came how she came to find herself in the nunnery which is to do with the uh the bleeding nun uh, a, a real life ghost but um basically they start hanging out in the garden they eventually shag then she comes to herself and like I can't believe we had sex I hate you <laughs> and then she's like committed in in ignoring him she's like <laughs> actually going to never see him again until she realizes that she's preggers and then has to be like like, okay i'll marry you i guess i'll marry you and love you forever yeah but i was very committed and i believe that she was very committed i believe she was as well and it's only the only reason that don raymond even hangs around is because he's the one who's kind of like oh no but i really do love you and i want to be with you be with you like Agnes is like i don't care yeah oh wait no i'm pregnant okay fine (laughs) i guess maybe we can work something out um get me the hell out of here yeah and kind of because at the point obviously she's uh, worried for uh for uh, the future of her child because she gets attached to the child very quickly yes and then she loses it and it's very tragic but she has a happy ending so happy yeah she does have she has yeah, a happy, she has ending. happy ending she has a happy ending as lewis describes it yeah. <laughs> uh, to what extent we kind of, we kind of just was like a bit lazy not really feeling a, like yeah. expressing you know postpartum depression or like the fact that she's lost her child <laughs> yeah like, been imprisoned been imprisoned for a long time like she's had a baby mm. like so <laughs> so yeah we don't we don't really get such a faithful demonstration of what and how an actual woman might have acted in that situation. However, Agnes is still a badass. Another badass. The best badass. Matilda. Badass bitch in the game. Matilda. New dress, blue flame. Matilda. Matilda's one of those characters who I'm like, God, I really want to not like this character as much as I do. Partly because I am just a resentful little shit. Mm-hmm. And so many of like the the kind of you know the classic like feminist characters I, I for some reason there's this thing in me that actively wants to be like i don't like them <laughs> like, <laughs> and i don't know why because there's, there's really no re- good reason mm-hmm. for that however i'm just a a little a contentious little shit basically and i was reading this character and kind of thinking like oh god i know i know exactly what kind of discussions we're going to be having in class oh mm-hmm. great Matilda, blah, blah blah she has agency blah 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 and just like being really bored by that whole topic but she's so cool. She is really cool. <laughs> like, she's like this demon queen mm-hmm. who just has like layer after layer after layer. And lit- like, the thing about it is, it feels kind of silly because, you know, when we kind of think about female characters, we're always like, we want them to be multi dimensional mm. and we want them to be multifaceted and have all of these different, you know, layers of personality. And Matilda has that very literally because she's literally constantly peeling off a mask and revealing a different person yeah. underneath. I think it's interesting as well, like the the juxtaposition between her as somebody that facilitates these terrible things that Ambrosia is doing, um, 
and the actual material harm that Ambrosia is doing with his rating yeah. and murdering and all the rest of it. But she's like um, portrayed it very intentionally to be like the more fallen one because she's made a contract. She's had a con- she's got a contract with the devil, but like Ambrosio is like, well, so long as I don't make a contract with her, I'm like fine, I'm cool. So long as I don't sign any contracts, I'm away and flying. So, but he's the one committing the rapes and the murders and and all and all the rest of it. Yeah, like, she doesn't really do anything that satanic apart from like <laughs> she doesn't do anything that satanic. Yeah. She also, you know, she's always described as being manipulative and, and what else, but she actually never. She never at any point suggests that he do any of these terrible things. She's, well, she's, was, she's just like, I was, know you want to do this. No, Here, no, no. He, he, was, he was comes to her with this thing. is like, I really want to do this thing. And she's like, okay, well, let me help you do that. Like, she never actually says, like, you should go and rape Antonia and kill her mother. He's like, she like he, he wants to do that. And she's just like, okay, well, I'll help I'll you I'll be then. an accessory to that. Yeah. Um, like, but because, again, like I said, <laughs> I'm like quite openly with the devil. Like I'm being, quite, she's quite pretty open by this point about being like I'm communing with the spirits, um, <laughs> blah, 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 like in the bottom of the crypt. Um, and at this point, I think she literally is described as well as being manly and assertive, and he hates it. He hates it. He really doesn't like manly women. And I kind of, I, I touched on it briefly when we were doing that super super long summary, but like yeah. how he kind of, he kind of like starts to disengage from finding. Uh, Matilda Hot when she kind of starts demonstrating these qualities that he doesn't see as feminine. So, for example, in the same way as Agnes kind of demonstrating, you know, this kind of go-getter attitude and also, like, you know, intelligence and, you know, she's very good at debating. Like, anytime he has a problem, she's like, well, this is why you shouldn't have this problem. And he's like, okay, fine. Like, he really doesn't have the even though he's kind of always described as intelligence, he really doesn't have the kind of mental wherewithal to kind of go toe-to-toe with Matilda over mm-hmm. these kind of, like, theological debates of, like, how much is this going to harm my soul? How much responsibility am I taking? And she's kind of like, well... You know, she's just kind of, at every point, she's just... That's why Matilda is also described as having control over these demons, mm. whereas Ambrosio never once has control over these urges or this lust or in the end of the novel obviously has an e-control we don't know the ultimate fate of matilda that's not clear i mean i'm sure um listeners you might be able to infer things um better than we can because in our whistle stop tour of this book (laughs) but um yeah she's 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 shown to be in control of it and in the interaction at the end where he's like i'm not gonna sign anything because i'm scared that i'm gonna like you know i don't want my soul to be sold or anything like that and she's like you're an idiot like you've you're you're fucked anyway like yeah you're you're already going to hell you're going to hell you've done all of these terrible things because you wanted to and the thing and even that even that interaction she's still to an extent wearing a mask because she says I've sold myself to the devil and so now I get a lifetime of wealth and prosperity and then right at the very end the devil's like actually no she's literally a demon like yeah. she's she's not sold herself like it's not that she she's a person who's like gone bad or like fallen anyway she is a literal demon who again is like masquerading and saying like oh no like I was I was evil all along and I've sold my soul temptation <laughs> she's like she is literally yeah she is literally sent there as essentially the apple to tempt the monk Ambrosio yeah. yeah like and and that is her her big goal and he fucks um, up he does fuck up he fucks up badly and 
keeps fucking and up. that's not even and not even to the extent that it's entirely <laughs> entirely Matilda's fault yeah. <laughs> he like, likes to blame women a lot uh, for yeah. their you know the, the how attracted he is to them and the but again that's part of the the wider sort of like message of like being like we should all fuck or we're all gonna go crazy with yeah. <laughs> Lewis we is, just um, have the sex but yeah, yeah should we also touch on um a few just very would, briefly touch on like elvira i um, would like to touch on elvira because she is quite an interesting character she mm-hmm. has this very cool backstory and she's also probably the most worldly and probably like quite similar to agnes in this way like she has we didn't we didn't go through our backstory Oh, that's quite confusing. Basically, what you need to know is that Elvira is young and beautiful, and she attracts the attention of the Marquis della Cisternus and or his son. And but the actual Marquis doesn't like her because she's poor, and so I thought it was Marquis. No, I think it's Marquis. I've I think it's pronounced no Marquis. Clue. I no clue. I could be wrong. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Marquis, the Marquis Marquis, um, Big M at the garden party. Yeah, no, <laughs> the Big Big M is like, I don't want you to marry my son, and his son is like, I don't care I'm gonna marry her anyway because she's so hot. So he takes her to the Caribbean. The Caribbean, which is a weird kind of stop off where we kind where he kind of like is owning. A plantation or something it's, it's all a bit kind of iffy mm-hmm. um we don't really ever hear enough about it to but they really immediately know what's going on. they immediately get there and he's like fuck this is terrible i don't well, no. like she's she's, she's no, that's, that's, that, that is that is in the film oh no that i'm sure that's in the no in the book okay no, i'm sure Maybe that's in the book as well i thought in the book i thought no i thought in the book what happened was that he... no she has the meltdown like she when she... she's like relaying when she's no, relaying he died no okay <laughs> definitely she she <laughs> definitely you... wishes Listeners, we definitely have read the book <laughs> he definitely definitely no, definitely she... regrets she's... it yeah i this think is... he regrets it but they say but she says like oh like we did have a relatively happy life I, that's what i thought anyway They I have think they a have a life, relatively happy but, life, but then he's... But he's, then he, he he does... he he No, he gets ill, doesn't he? He gets ill, but he, he does Ill, kind of regret his, it as well. In, in his in his ill-addled state, he kind of gets really angry and starts hating her and resenting her for, oh, I for think you're this right, actually, illness. Yeah. And then he dies, and then she's left without a penny because he's been disinherited. Oh, yeah, yeah. I yes, think you're that's right. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> um, and so she kind of has this very worldly backstory, and she understands with this kind of preternatural sense that her daughter is in danger in a way that no one else really does mm-hmm. you know lauren ellis even there when antonio gets approached by the gypsy and is kind of like you're gonna die soon I guess, and lauren yeah. is like oh this is stupid but elvira's always having like these dreams and these 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 uh, prophetic visions and stuff like this where she kind of feels that something is wrong and something is going to about to happen to her daughter um and on top of that she's kind of constantly witnessing this monk mm-hmm. sleaze on her daughter <laughs> and it's kind of the only one who's like um stop sleezing on my daughter mm-hmm. like this is i i know exactly what this what is, is happening i've worse, seen sex because you're not just a cavalier <laughs> you're a monk you're a monk that's coming in and trying to... And you're not just a monk, you're Ambrosio, the monk. Yeah, the thing that kind of separates Don Lorenzo from from potentially becoming like Ambrosio, not that he's 
He's interesting free, enough to, but but it, like, but he's like, a free spirit. Yeah, he's allowed to shy. Don't, yeah, exactly. He's not, but part of the, the he's, he's not he's not part of the the um the church. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the masculinity is kind of like warped and restrained by the Catholic Church, mm. and Don Lorenzo is able to marry her, and you know, Elvira kind of sees Ambrosio kind of creep in on Antonio. He's like, well, that's obviously never going to happen. There's only one thing that can be on his mind, mm. and. That was a little detour. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Elvira's pretty cool. We then have Laurinella, who is basically just comic relief. Mm-hmm. The only, we only got her here on our plan just to talk about how... Just, just a reference Lewis, she was I there. think, you know, it's interesting to talk about sort of misogyny in the book because obviously mm, yeah. there's a lot of Yeah, and this is relevant to the question that I will ask you when we come... when we finish talking about the women yeah. there's a lot of violence that happens to to women in this but i i it, it is interesting to consider whether matthew lewis is being just like ham-handedly misogynistic what i do think he tr- there is true misogyny is, is in, in his, his depiction, depiction of, of laurinella uh, yeah. <laughs> um I was just like an old like ridiculous woman i think she's like in a i don't know like mid 40s or something like that but and she's, she's an old she's supposed to be ugly but she's like delusion Nelly convinced herself that she's beautiful. Yeah. Lorenzo... She convinces herself that she Don Cristobal Lorenzo's friend, yeah, who's only who's literally only there to like basically like leer like be in the first scene where him and Lorenzo are kind of like leering at women in the church. Yeah, um, and Lorenzo wants to talk to Antonia. So Cristobal so starts with a conversation. Starts a conversation with Lorenella so that she's that, so that they have some semblance of privacy. And Lorenella takes that to be an example of his desire for her yeah. and not only is she not only is she, is she delusional in that way but she then is like very bad mannered um in a very kind of Jane Austen way where she then kind of like presumes to say I will accept the proposal that yeah. you're inevitably gonna going make. to make to me because of course you're going to make me a proposal you've been flirting with me this whole time in the church and Don Christopher's like what the fuck <laughs> like, yeah. have I just committed myself to marrying Shit. this hag yeah. um, but it's fine because she does actually end up getting married she ends up going to Cordova mm-hmm. and then only comes back very briefly to hear that Elvira and, and then she's like again. oh well, there's nothing I can do for them and goes back to Cordova yep. <laughs> and so she's kind of really only there as like comic relief which is relevant I will ask I will now pose the question mm. which I haven't yet structured in my mind okay <laughs> but like do you think mm that the representation of women in this book is intentionally or unintentionally misogynistic. So I think that's a funny one because, I, I you know, a lot has been said on, you know, the, the, the extreme and graphic nature of the violence dealt to women in this book. Um, but obviously it is also an analysis of how um, the Catholic Church holds women to impossible standards as well of sort of purity and to the extent that it's an artifice, hence why, you know, with all the imagery with the Madonna and the statues and, and, and so on and so forth. But there is sometimes very odd moments in the prose where it's difficult to tell who is, where the focalization here is, um, if there is any, and it's just sort of like the, you know, the omniscient uh, narrator. Well, there's a section here that says, Now Antonia had observed the air with which Don Christopher had kissed the same hand. She drew conclusions from it somewhat different from her aunt's. She was wise enough to hold her tongue. 
as this is the only instance known of a woman's ever having done so, it was judged worthy to be recorded here. Like, where did that come from, oh, Lewis? Yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten about that. Where line. the hell did that come from? And yeah. who, who's, who was, whose opinion is are we supposed to believe that is? Because yeah. we were quite firmly rooted in Antonia's vocalisation there. So where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. I was that just like a random expression, you know, a, a personal opinion just sort of inserted into... It's very weird that the writing style like has this very kind of colloquial... Like, it's, li- it's like you are being told by a person rather mm. than just like reading prose as as within that bit like the writer kind of makes commentary on the things that happen and yeah where did that come from yeah. like there's really... it says ever haven't been recorded here but there's no sort of like prefacing of the monk being like a book that's been found or like let me tell you dear readers a tale as it's you know it sort of just goes into scarcely had the abbey bell told for five minutes like we're quite yeah, firmly it's just in the a scene story. it's just like it feels like again i think because of that like insinuation that the monk is a story it's sort of like it's metatextual it takes you out it breaks the um i think this is an expression for i don't know video games but it breaks the uh fourth wall for a second like Lewis is just like it's actually theatre oh is it yeah <laughs> the more you know but it feels like Lewis just sort of like jumps out and is like women so I think yeah. that is slightly more interesting to talk about than the um, just because there's been so much uh, yeah. so much literature and you know a crit- critical literature written about the moon we have, a, we have a we have an ambient moon yeah. for the gothic vibes and it's just fallen over it only sits yeah put it against the converse lovely beautiful <laughs> um, yeah, there's been a lot of critical uh, literature written about um, that. And I, I, I bet about the uh, comment I've just made there as well. But that's what stuck out to me the most. Yeah. He's just like completely random it's... moments of like, <sighs> yeah. women. He has this kind of like, it's, it, it is this weird kind of like disparity between like this very clear, concise theory that like what this novel is intending to do and what Lewis really wants you to believe is that like the idolization of anything here represented through female bodies is fundamentally harmful um it doesn't live up to the realities of life and uh actively aids violence and destruction because it, you can't live up to it and so it's just it's just you're only it's just going to be torn down essentially and so this kind of character of Antonia who kind of everyone sees as being a bit of a wet blanket I find really interesting because she's kind of this kind of perfect ideal of perfection and she goes through all these moments where like when we see people view her and we understand the way that people view her like there's a random bit quite near the beginning of the book where Don Lorenzo's just met her he's inf- he's overcome he lo- he's fallen in love with her like he's amazed by her beauty he wants to marry her he goes and falls asleep in the church for, for, no, for yeah. no reason and then has this very weird uh, fever dream where he kind of like uh, which also has this element of prophecy where he he kind of like imagines marrying uh, uh, Antonia in the church and then her being kind of torn away from him and uh, spirited away by this monster and you know this is obviously very prophetic of like you know what actually happens to her in real mm-hmm. life like mm-hmm. you know she, she destroyed 
Lots taken. of prophecies around Antonia. She gets, you know, there's... There's about, a lot of prophecies. Like, you know, and she has to die. She has to die. At least three and different is, instances and of her is, being told that. Yeah, and this is very much the point, is that, like, she is so perfect. And she's only... And part of her perfection is her virginity. And, like, you know, there's this whole theme of Eve of the Wedding Night um, with Herman Lorenzo and kind of, like, which is similar in a, in a lot of ways. It has been compared to Frankenstein. And Mary Shelley was very much inspired by by this novel when mm-hmm. writing Frankenstein. But kind of like, you know, she's she's so she's so pure, she's so innocent, she's so virginal that like as soon as in uh his dream when he marries her, you know, that's the part where they should theoretically consummate the marriage and have sex, but instead she's spirited away and destroyed by this monster. Mm-hmm. And in real life, like when she, you know, is is uh raped by Ambrosio, she is killed because she she cannot exist in the minds of these men or in the world that they've created um, as this perfect thing anymore because she's no longer perfect and so she can't exist and so she must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so I find her a really interesting character. And, you know, I'm kind of reading it and comparing it to Agnes and it's all all very cleverly um, uh, constructed to give you this impression that the way that women are presented here is, is, is bad and it's wrong. And then you have characters like Laurinella, who are literally just there for comic relief. And I think, you that's, have... the, I think that's, you know, where the sort of, like, lick of real kind of misogyny is. All the rest yeah, of it, like exactly. you said, that's is, like, what a, I mean. a construction... To, is to... It kind of... You have this whole lofty theory that you can really get behind and you can really read so much into, and then it's completely undermined by these moments... Like, like that quote that you just yeah. said of, like, this, this weird omniscient narrator who just joins in and is like oh women never shut up do they am yeah. i right and you know then laurenella's there being just like comic relief and you know i think i think there is maybe an argument to be had where it's kind of like oh well maybe in the case of laurenella like she you know she she could have been a man like there's no reason like she's just she just happens to be a woman there's no reason why the comic relief can't be a woman but it's the fact that her the comic aspects of her are so a, a so intrinsically related to femininity like her beauty or lack of beauty her desire to marry her desire to marry like her her yeah the fact that she's a spinster like the mm-hmm. fact that she thinks that everyone's in love with her also the fact that you know we have to remember that the male is the standard and that when it's female like when that's an active decision that's been made and so lewis has chosen to make lorenella a female mm-hmm. and just then decided to do that and it's like well this is <laughs> this isn't like that yeah that's that's where it's it, so i'm kind of i am torn on that question because mm. i'm like there are genuine moments where you can believe that this is a, a book that's very like anti-misogyny and kind of represents that very well and then moments where it's also all about just very misogynistic yeah. <laughs> exactly. um yeah it's a it's a head scratcher. It is. It is a, it's a little old head scratcher. But moving away from the characters now, into some of the ghosts themes. and spooky happenings. Yeah. The ghosts and spooky happenings. Yeah, let's talk about Probably the ghosts the and spooky happenings. Probably the most central theme uh, to, to do with the gothic. Probably the most central theme to do with the gothic. And relating quite well to the point that we were just talking oh, my, about. My, my favourite part of the gothic, anyhow. <laughs> and which relates quite, re- uh, uh, quite well to the point that we just made. We were talking about the bleeding nun. Um, and this kind of this haunting. Mm. So 
let's because we didn't we didn't cover it in in our in our twenty minute exposition. I'm sure I can give you like a literally a ten second one. Okay, try and okay, Jamie, please Um, explain the bleeding nun. Bleeding nun created um, in the house in Germany where Agnes uh, is staying with her aunt and uncle, I believe. Aunt and uncle, family, family. In this house, there was a baron previous and a woman called Beatrice. Can I remember why she was there? No, I cannot. (laughs) But basically, um, she is his mistress and they are shagging. But she asks one day to be made his wife and he refuses. So she's like, he has to die. Um, She kills him because, you know, like I just said, he's condemned her to be a concubine and um, a seductress and she wanted to be a wife um, but yeah she kills him because of that so <laughs> arguments to be made there that <laughs> murderess is probably a little bit worse in Takes terms of Catholic far, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of sort of like Catholic judgments made on women than concubine but regardless she kills him and then the Baron's brother who uh, I believe she starts sleeping with as well kills her and then God creates the bleeding nun, um, not permitting her to rest, to punish the Baron's brother, um, who she she wished to like elope with and and marry. So that's the creation of the bleeding nun, baby. That's the creation of the bleeding nun, and how she is presented is when Don Raymond is in Germany and meeting Agnes. She's supposed to be haunting this castle, and their whole plot but like they don't really believe it she's only meant to show up once every five years and then their plot is to Agnes to dress up as the Agnes bleeding nun Agnes to up as yep. the bleeding nun on the night that she's supposedly meant to appear even though they don't think that she does and every like everyone will let her pass because they're so scared of her she'll jump in the carriage and they'll like so Raymond is waiting outside with the carriage bleeding nun gets in he gets a real ghost he gets he's a real ghost he gets the real ghost the real ghost wants to marry Don Raymond and we have probably the funniest bit of the whole book where he he breaks like all of his legs and arms breaks all of his legs and arms the carriage crash because because the horses are so scared because there's a (laughs) ghost in the back yeah and there's there's a really there's a really like trad spooky bit where they're like oh where he like the 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 carriage falls over and Don Raymond's like Oh, where's where's the woman I was with? And the the person who's come to help is like, oh, there there was no woman with yeah. you. And it's like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they get back and she she just comes to him every night and haunts him with this terrible poem <laughs> that he wrote for Agnes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so funny. But yeah, this is kind of like a character who in life experienced great kind of like uh, personal violence. Um, who has been held in the stasis of limbo that she can't rest for the sake of a male character. (laughs) Because of that, like, you know, she doubles quite nicely with Agnes, where it's very, very obvious as to that that Lewis wants you to think that because Agnes is literally going to dress up as the bleeding numb. Um, Yeah. You know, there's a lot of doubling in this this novel. What do you think of the bleeding... Did you find the bleeding nun... Scary? Scary? Not did you no. find her? <laughs> no. Did you like what were your impressions of of the bleeding nun? Because um, mine are just kind kind of just a bit ridiculous. I thought like she had more of a fear factor until like 
she was nearly exercised and she was like no i won't quit him i shan't and then <laughs> i um, want to marry don yeah, <laughs> this is like listen we'll bury your bones and like do lo- like 20 masses and, like, and she's like that'll do <laughs> that's fine <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of spooky happenings that go on in Germany, including the Green Man, also including the Wandering Jew, who's kind of like this this uh, well, the literary. He's part of a, he's, he's part of yeah, like a long a long-standing anti-Semitic tradition to depict a Jewish person uh, yeah. as having laughed at Jesus when he was on the way to be crucified and is therefore like condemned to walk the earth forever. And, and he's the one who who knows how to exercise yes. the spirit. So yeah, there are these kind of weird, genuine moments of of real ghostly happenings, and then a very odd sort of like was it what the hell just happened there? Which we've got uh, written here as the chicken wing ghost. The chicken wing ghost. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, how Elvira? How the mighty fall? Yeah. Yeah, I want to try and like basically. Avara dies, and Tony's really sad about it. She then sees she and her landlady Jacintha then see the ghost. At separate occasions, though, the ghost yeah. that approaches Antonia yeah. is more like you know. The, she, yeah, the ghost that approaches Antonia is like, she says something really quick. She's like, "You're You'll gonna see me soon," which is basically this prophecy of like, "You're gonna die in like three days' time or whatever," which everyone's going on about. But no one pays any attention to this, and we'll talk about why that might be later. But like. Anyway, the problem is that there's a ghost haunting. The Jacintha then sees Jacintha then sees the ghost and is like gets this really weird narrative about eating chicken on a Friday and mm-hmm. then like having displeased God and then that's why she's died and why she's now haunted as if as if fucking Jacintha believes that Elvira yeah. is haunting the house because her soul is unable to move on because she ate some chicken. Like, I think it's parodying, you know, some of the the superstitious yeah. Catholic beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just silly. It is silly. Like that was all to, we really wanted to say on the older. But no, chicken, but do you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken wingos. <laughs> the chicken wingos. But like, do you think that like do you think that there's a point to the ghost? Like, do you think that... Because last time when we were talking about the Castle of Otranto, we kind of didn't really... Couldn't really see much of a point for them to be there, or at least for them to be there in the way they were, and then kind of realised think... that they're sort of there as, like, a harbinger of sexual intent. Yeah. Like, problematic sexual intent. But, like, I don't see... I think they have, you know, good... They have pl- relevance to the plot. Uh, the bleeding nun more so than Elvira slash the chicken wing. <laughs> um, the, the, the difference in which they're written with, I think, is is quite marked as well. In that, like the chicken wing ghost has got snakes for hair and is like very very big as well. Back to ghostly bigness, but Elvira is seems like a more of a charged with sort of like intent. Like it's not just you know the the the, the, the same thing with that instance of Elvira's ghost manifesting and the bleeding nun is that they have things to do with their livid lives or the living in general that are unresolved meanwhile sort of the chicken wing ghost is just a manifestation a par- like a, a very uh, a parody of a sort of like um, a catholic transgressor- transgression eating the chicken wing on a Friday <laughs> meanwhile Elvira is there to warn her daughter that she's going to die in three days that feels like <laughs> to me to be more of like a reason for these things to be happening and more a sort of like 
Like, that's not to say that there aren't ridiculous bits with the bleeding nun. Like, we were talking about that that poem is pretty. But I'm blaming Don Lorenzo for that. She He got her into it. But that whole not section... Not Don Lorenzo. Fuck, Don, Don Raymond. Raymond. But that whole section with Don Raymond, again, it goes on for chapters, and there are bits with bandits, and, like, you know, he lose. It just goes on for so long. And it's, like, so much of it is kind of, like, you could have just, like... Like, did, did this need to happen? Did this need to happen in the book? Did Did you need... Did you need to tell me this? Mm. Um, like, so many of the ghosts... And it's it's interesting because unlike the cast of Otranto, it feels very natural for those ghosts to be there. Yeah, I agree. Whereas it kind of... It doesn't really in the same way. But I kind of want to interrogate that because I'm kind of like, but why does it feel natural? Because the real scary parts are... The horrible sexual violence. The sexual me, violence, yeah. the the murder, mm-hmm. like the the hot the hot this this monk like falling from grace and committing all these you know atrocities. You know, not even that, but just like you know the the um, you know the whole ordeal that Agnes goes through. Yeah. She's like tortured by these nuns and like you know this horrible uh, prioress who like is basically condemning her and like lying and just being a terrible person. It's like that's the scary bit of the story so the ghosts are just there for fun and it works really well because it's quite a fun book but like it's sort of they don't (laughs) like they don't really need to be there for the story to to be frightening or to even just happen in the way that it happens i think the bleeding nun does for agnes i don't know i think like all of all of all of the plot see could theoretically have been left omitted out. and, omitted just, told in like and a, just told in like a oh no you're probably right actually. like, like the we, just, we just have, have her in there. the nunnery and then i have to get out because i'm pregnant yeah exactly you don't need to have all that you could just been like i met uh agnes while i was traveling i thought she was really hot but she was taken into a convent like that doesn't need to be this whole plot of like we tried to get her out she dressed up as a ghost like the ghost wanted to marry me i was bound to this ghost and like <laughs> i had to lay the ghost to rest and i had to get this to help of this this uh you know a kind of vampiric wandering character um you know it's, it's it's so it's so it's so it's just so like, it's, <laughs> it's so much like it's just it so much of everything it's so it's so it just adds to the aesthetic of this kind of very um very male horror and that was his intention in writing it is that he wants to step away from kind of Anne Radcliffe's female terror and just put the ghost the fucking ghost in the book um and make it kind of fun and silly and horrific and gratuitous and gross right until it's not right and that's why the monk is i think like much scarier because it's like kind of goofy until it's really not goofy at all yeah it's very which is very sensational leads quite nicely onto i think we should just we've sort of done like um the wandering jew let's talk about how about Prophecy, demon summonings, and general magic all in one. And then a little sprinkling of the old rotting baby. Because that's <laughs> sprinkling the old... White, horrible. Rotting child. Uh, yeah, prophecy, I think, is an interesting one. I was thinking about this after the discussion we had last time mm. in terms of, like, how prophecy... You know, the kind of... The villain Manfred in The Castle of Otranto is kind of seen... Is kind of villainous because he... Everyone knows the prophecy. He's the one who tries to change it. And he's the one who actively tries to, like, reject that prophecy and kind of have his will over it and, you know, not just succumb to it like everyone else. And I think prophecy here 
specifically as it relates to Antonia, because Antonia is the one who most of the prophecies are about. Yeah. That her virtue is kind of signalled in this way because she is given this prophecy <laughs> over and over again that she's going to die, you're going to die, you're going to have a terrible terrible time of it you know she gets it from the gypsy people are having prophetic dreams about her a ghost comes to see her and tells her she's gonna die in like three days and she ignores all of it she doesn't she literally i don't think she's necessarily ignoring it well she is she's definitely ignoring it but it's i think she's ignoring it because it's supposed to be representative of how almost pathological her innocence is but that's that's what yeah that's that's what i mean is that she's kind of seen as like part of the reason that we're meant to believe that she's good is because she doesn't she does not take any time to engage with these prophecies that are are being shoved in her face being shoved in her face and predicting her doom Mm. (laughs) like she just doesn't she doesn't she doesn't there's you know the the first one where she's walking home with Oranella and she comes upon a a a gypsy woman singing and i use the word because that's the word that's used in the text Mm. the traveler singing um and is given this prophecy that you're gonna have you're not gonna get married you're not gonna have a happy life you're gonna die young really soon it's gonna be painful it's gonna be horrible um but then you can go to heaven and this is a horrible horrible thing and she doesn't even she doesn't even get the prophecy because she wants the prophecy she wants Lorenella wants her her, her fortune told mm. and oh, yeah and the and the the traveler's kind of just like um no <laughs> like you're really boring you're, you're really old you've got nothing left to live for funny, a little funny sort of prophecy for her that talks about how old she is and gross yeah she's just like you've lived your life already there's nothing left for you <laughs> which actually turns out to be completely wrong she goes off and gets married yeah but... she does <laughs> um, but she's not young and beautiful so it doesn't apply the, mm-hmm. prof- the prophecy rules don't apply but yeah like, and she just kind of like you know, she's kind of shaken by this prophecy that she's going to die imminently for a moment and then she, like, goes and has a cup of tea and then she's kind of, like, over it and just never thinks about it again. Even when her mother comes to her and is like, you're going to die in three days and, like, is having all these dreams of being like, I'm really worried about you. Um, she mm. never thinks of it. Um, and, yeah, this is kind of meant to be, like, her the signal of her virtue, whereas, you know, if we contrast that with Ambrosio, mm. he's not given a prophecy in this in the same way, but he is kind of, like... He knows that if he sins, he'll be condemned to hell. Mm-hmm. And so he knows that when he is sinning, That's well, exactly what's that going to do? Yeah. Um, and yeah, he kind of constantly has these these conversations with himself and with Matilda where he kind of rationalises it. And he's like, you know, when he just ha- was sleeping just with Matilda, he's kind of like, oh, well, I've only committed one sin and the rest of me is still so pure. Um, so I guess I'm still good. G- God will forgive me. Um, despite the fact that he's being incredibly vain. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, he and you know he does you know then he wants to sleep with uh antonia but he kind of convinces himself like oh well i'm not making this deal with this demon uh matilda's making this deal so in that way like oh i'm still good i'm still fine i have nothing to do with this um even though he's obviously you know (laughs) the one committing the Mm -hmm. rape and, Mm -hmm. and the murder um and kind of always kind of trying to rationalize his way out of his own fate yeah which is set and so yeah prophecy man prophecy prophecy guys if someone gives you a prophecy lean into that prophecy lean into that prophecy don't Don't have a cup of tea and forget the prophecy (laughs) has just been issued to you maybe take the prophecy a bit seriously take the prophecy seriously but also don't try and change it because you're just gonna end up killing someone and going to hell 
and selling your soul to the devil. That's that's and the moral of the story. Getting your eyeballs popped <laughs> out uh, and then being pushed off a cliff. <laughs> yes. Speaking of the demons and of the devil, the devil makes an appearance in this book, he which does. I love. Me too. I loved it at the end, but we've got an actual, <laughs> actual um, Satan moment. We got a real demon. We got a real. We de- didn't in the film though. Not to jump ahead to. Uh, no, we did. No, we didn't get an actual like we didn't get the demon like a CGI demon. Oh no, we didn't get a CGI demon. I wanted a CGI demon. We didn't get a CGI demon. We got so Satan. Bad. We did get Satan. And I actually quite liked. I quite liked film. it and as we, well. We, we, we'll discuss this more yeah. later. But yeah, no, the devil appears in all of his deviled glory. Mm. Um, is we like we said earlier, we sort of describe the instance in which he signs the the contract to be with the devil yeah um, and it's to the devil directly like it's not like you know when he's a monk and he's kind of like abstractly trying to reach god through prayer not it, really knowing what's you, happening he he like the devil shows do you up know what it do, does feel like <laughs> it feels like because i think the, the novel is so like previous to this point really intentional and in not letting you know any of the specifics of this like demon summoning and like devil worshipping that uh, Matilda is doing it kind of feels like a celebrity appearance at the end where like <laughs> Satan comes out and he's here like we've got Satan he's here like the he's here in the arrived. he's finally here like we're actually getting like you know you know in Animal Crossing where you have to try and get KK to the island yeah that's what it feels that's... like you have, to, you have to commit enough sins to get the devil yeah. to come and take your soul and there he is you know like we've been you know we, you're not we're seldom sort of of like, I don't think we ever get like a focalization with Matilda slash Rosario, or if I think if it does, it's very brief and sort of uninteresting. But it's mostly through Ambrosio. Because of that, we don't get to see any of like the occult rituals that are like apparently or quite clearly going on in the crypt. So to see this, um, I think was pretty fun. We did see. We do see. Yeah, you're right. We do. We see one summoning, mm. but it's very kind of like you know Matilda speaking another language, and you know it's all very like it's all very alienating. He's described as like what like a like a beautiful man with like red wings, mm. which I love. <laughs> I want red wings. Actual Satan at the end is like and then, pretty grotesque. Yeah, which I also love. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just love the whole aesthetic of hell. <laughs> I really do. Me too. Um, but yeah, like the magic mirror as well. Like there are all these, there are all these fun little. <laughs> like if if, the, if this were to be a franchise, like you could, there you could just make so much jewelry off of it. Like you could you make could. the mirror, the freaky mirror with the bird bit mm-hmm. in it. Um, yeah, okay, basically just the mirror. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the mirror. Just no, the you mirror. could have the book. You could have a uh, Rosario's Mat- hood. Mat- Matilda's book. You could have. Yeah, Rosario. Just all of the things. Rosario's that... hood with like a little a little popper flap to expose your breast yeah. at any point. Um... Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's all the spooky bits, mm-hmm. and they show up genuinely. We'll now contrast this with the real life the real danger. life danger that is present and that we we have uh, touched on. It's unavoidable because mm-hmm. it's just so gratuitous. Um, but yeah, crime and punishment. Crime and punishment. Crime, Crime punishment. and punishment. To do with... So, again, like, when we're discussing sort of, like, I, I suppose the supernatural and then the less, less supernatural, like, the real life, um, the things... The natural. The natural danger <laughs> of uh, human beings trying to, like, rob each other, um, which is in reference to the C-plot, 
which we have sort of alluded to quite unhelpfully throughout this uh, without really giving you a proper summary. I'm not going to give you a proper summary. I'm just going to sort no of tell point. you <laughs> Don Raymond is traveling God knows where. I can't really remember. But it's he like gets, near Salt. He, he gets stuck on the road and is invited into a stranger's house, Baptiste. Um, <laughs> and with he he takes note of his like quite frosty wife, Marguerite. Um, and they turn out to be bandits. And then they turn out to be bandits who want to kill him and rob him. And also the Baroness is there, who is Agnes's aunt, the one who fell in love with him and then prohibited his marriage to agnes because she was in love with him she's there they both um escape unscathed but there's quite a horrendous scene where they're riding past the barn where all their servants are and they can hear them just getting like butchered and also uh, and we never touch on we, that yeah <laughs> exactly like the very real life danger um you know the, 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 the our characters are just completely surrounded by danger yeah, this world is fraught with danger mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. can't trust the nuns you can't trust either the you're monks. with god and you get punished or you're against god and you get punished you're just a humble servant trying to take the horses to the barn you get slaughtered in your sleep like where are you to go yeah there's kind of and it's interesting because yeah everyone experiences all these like gr- grisly um uh events in in their lives and all of these happenings and yet you know you have this kind of obviously you know christian narrative where people are kind of saying well you just have to you know accept god and then you know you'll go to heaven but like there's never any narrative of this happening like there's never any like reconciliation of like you know even with kind of uh antonia kind of there's no there's no kind of assertion that she's in a better place or like that she's that you know like it's just it's just kind of well it's just i kind always of like that there is there is an assertion that she's in a better place because there's the dream where that lorenzo has where um you know she's like she fights off the demon or she's like being attacked by the demon and then that goes up to heaven which you're like oh, oh that's yeah. kind of that's kind of like um I'm not sure about yeah. that. And then you get to the end where, like, you know, Ambrosia is literally carried off by the de- by by Satan, and you're like, well, I guess it's like conceivable that she's gone up to heaven, but like we don't know that exactly. And it's never kind of something that's ever brought up, which is interesting because obviously this is quite a, an anti-Catholic novel. Um, the French Revolution the, will do that. To the you. French Revolution will do that. Um, that is one way to lose God. Uh, but like. Sorry, I'm trying to find I'm trying to find the best way to express this because there's all there's yeah for for this world that's created that is that's so heavily Catholic and so heavily corrupt Catholic where all of these things are going wrong and people are having all of these terrible things done to them, you know the fact that Lewis deliberately kind of leaves out any kind of like moments of salvation yeah, or like eternal happiness is really telling <laughs> I, like, I mean it's like even in terms of like the masses like you've got like the masses who are being preached to tearing apart at you know the abet the uh, abess in the streets committing a terrible sin and being willing to do that you know to turn against a member of the church so willingly and also this abess herself has like imprisoned a pregnant mm. woman and just like 
like and left her to die and starve and to bury her yeah, own baby. Not, so like everyone is just the like, novel sort of fucked. isn't ever at any point kind of like condemns that as being like a terrible thing. It's like he's just you like, know the, yeah. the the kind of the the situation. I think that the situation with the abbess is is particularly interesting, and I think that because of uh, the involvement from the public and the general crowd, because. I, a few years ago, wrote, wrote a little essay on Dracula, and in the process of writing this essay on Dracula, I was looking for some examples of gothic villainy and some quotes that I could use and cite. Um, this isn't relevant, but I did come across, oh, maybe it was like a, I can't remember what it was, but it was it was, it was was something, something written or something I, I read that, that kind of stated that, like, the, the gothic villain is... A violent agent for humanity in and what I mean by that is kind of like you know if we take for example Ambrosio yeah let's take Ambrosio Mm -hmm. um the Ambrosio is you know violent and terrible and aggressive and you know this sinful sinful man um but what he's he's really expressing is kind of like a pushback against this this uh repression um the sexual repression this this um this cloistered freedom um you know he's he's kind of he's kind of never been allowed out of the monastery um he's kind of never had any experiences or any real life he's kind of never been able to fulfill his potential which is something that he recognizes himself even though he doesn't necessarily see it as being a problem at the time mm. and so you know he, he, him kind of committing these sins in in this very atrocious way is, is violent is horrible and it's disgusting but it's 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 him kind of reclaiming that that um that aspect of like humanity and his his freedom and the crowd is a very interesting way of um applying this theory because obviously the crowd are the masses who this is meant to apply to mm-hmm. and so um you know, in the in the first scene when they're in when they're in the super busy church, it's kind of like kind of shown to be sort of like a a kind of like uh, oh, what's the word uh, sacrilegious that they're all like kind of stood on these statues um, and kind of like of these saints and kind yeah, of like not taking off it and the yeah, boys like cr- uh, yeah kind of not taking these 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 images of these saints which they're meant to worship like very seriously like it's kind of like hinted that you're supposed to be like oh that's that's not a good thing um, but by the end of it obviously like what we realise is that the 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 true the true monster is the Catholic Church mm-hmm. um, and the fact that the 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 um, common people turn on the abbess and kind of reaffirm that uh that they ultimately are the moral arbiters and they no longer answer to this 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 system of catholicism um and that and that catholicism now has to answer to mm. these people mm-hmm. instead um and you know they obviously again in a very violent way reclaim that aspect of their humanity and so yeah, like I think I think that it's I think that crime and punishment is a very interesting thing because it's kind of like well, it's and it's a very gothic thing as well because it's like well these people these characters have done terrible things but also in a way a kind of at the same time like have a aren't not necessarily justified but like have a reason. There's a definitely for, a yeah, reason for doing. There's it, definitely yeah. a moral argument to be made for having done this even if it's not one that we necessarily. Or there's sort of like, to. not necessarily like a moral instruction, but like a moral depiction 
that Lewis is trying to lead us to. Yeah. Quite obviously. Yeah. Um, just in accordance with the narrative as well. Yeah. The crime and punishment, the Catholic Church, I've obviously already kind of touched on that some and of the... saints and idols. And... But sh- should we talk about the Eden motif? The just Eden briefly, motif, because yeah. I think... But I do think it's, like, extremely... Well, you know, it's very obvious. It's made. It's another one of those things where it's, like, extremely obvious. He gets bitten by the snake. He gets bitten by a snake in this beautiful rose garden. Mm -hmm. What could that be alluding to? (laughs) I wonder. It's, yeah, it's, um... It's it's, it's, kind of, in the the same way it kind of associates... It kind of brings back that theme that's constantly kind of referenced in this book of, like, sin and knowledge being like fundamentally entwined not because necessarily the snake biting him in the garden is 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 what's happening there but because you know obviously the theme of like uh the story of the garden of eden is like you know she eats an apple from the tree of knowledge and that's how they learn shame blah 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 but like you know we've already spoken about this book kind of like in the beginning where Antonia and Ambrosio are described as being so innocent because they don't know the difference between the sexes and you know Ambrosio doesn't know what lust is because he's never seen a woman's body before Matilda shows him her tits (laughs) Um, and only then is he kind of like knowledgeable enough to be able to lust Mm -hmm. and that's when the snake comes in Mm -hmm. and yeah I think it's a very I think but it's a very. Instead, do you think it's too on the nose? No, I think it's great. I, I love Paradise Lost, well. and I just think it's like there's almost this like imagining like, oh my god, what if the snake had like met Adam first instead of Eve? Like in that's Paradise actually Lost. a cool idea. Like, what if the snake had come across Adam first? Like, what would he? How would he have acted? How would Satan have acted? What would he have done? I like, actually think that's an interesting way of reading that ambrosio storyline oh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't quite made that leap <laughs> of like i was just like yeah he's eve um, <laughs> he's i'm like stop <laughs> no <laughs> well i have a very compelling argument as to why he why he could be mm. um actually yeah let's just let's let's jump right onto that let's ju- let's jump onto sex and gender sex and gender let's jump onto Be- the also because the... uh we're conscious of time and um how long have we been going for now two hours Anyway, yeah. Let's continue. <laughs> Make the listen even more. In fact, we won't cut anything out. <laughs> <laughs> listen to all the books. Yeah. <laughs> and all the little bits of us going, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, I don't have an article to hand in, so we'll be we so will organized. actually have a plan. Next time, for the Italian. The Italian is going to be such a good episode. Listen, mm. just, just you fucking wait. And I can't stress enough, when we get to Twilight... Oh, oh, you don't <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, so, yeah. Gender, gender swapping, the feminization of Ambrosio. I've touched on this briefly when we were talking about Agnes and kind of like her kind of more masculine, classical masculine characteristics. Ambrosio is kind of the opposite and you know that's because of his mm. his, his monkly duties. He's obviously cloistered, he's taken vows of celibacy but like it's described in this way that like he's just this very innocent effeminate girl <laughs> yeah he's like this like hey, I, I you know how like Ken dolls like Barbies have just like got no <laughs> yeah. it's like described as that until like until he's like the opposite where he has no like face or anything he's just like a walking pair of like I actually really like genitals. that I like I, li- I like that that's 
That is a Look good bit of imagery, Jamie. I'm an out with some zingers right You really do. You really do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember this. I'm going to go I'm gonna reference this in, in my essay. Um, Source, Jamie. Wow, <laughs> a podcast. Um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, is yeah. He's described in a very effeminate way. Like he, as I've said before, you know, he doesn't know the difference between sexes. He's never even seen a woman. He's know what a woman is. He's like, and you know, he kind of makes these allusions to himself as well. He kind of says like, oh, if I'd you know not been not been brought brought to this monastery as a child, like I would have been an amazing man, and I've had all mm-hmm. these manly qualities, and maybe I've been a soldier, which is obviously this, you know, very yeah. uh, uh, visceral imagery of male testosterone yeah, it's quite, um, which he has been kind of like restricted from it literally says it's like he, it's not natural for him to be this timid and uh, he's been made fearful by the catholic church like yeah and like he's, he's very clearly been, i described it in class as a as a kind of social castration mm-hmm. um but like the how he's kind of just like seen as this kind of yeah he he's Lewis kind of represents him as this character who's been completely cut off from his his gender and his sexuality and so when he's kind of exposed to these things not only like in the external world but about himself it's kind of this it can only be this kind of devastating situation because he is not he's he's been he's had like this violent Mm -hmm. metaphorical castration um I had a point about it to make and I've completely forgotten. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> like, um yeah, like I just think I just think like the gender swapping or the gender role swapping is mm. very very interesting in the way it's kind of used, specifically like how it relates to kind of like queer readings of the text mm-hmm. and how Matthew Lewis was probably gay. probably gay. Yeah. Um and you know, at that point when you kind of think about it and you kind of read the relationship between Rosario and Ambrosio before we know that Rosario, that Rosario is Matilda. Is... I think it's honestly the nicest he is in the text when he's like when is when he's re- re- interacting with Rosario. He's just like there's a, there's tactility. I think it's some one of the only moments of sort of non-violent tactility we get is the two of them sat on that bench. Like he puts a hand on him and is like, and don't you worry, you can tell me anything. Yeah, and Matilda like well. Rosario sits there and is like, theoretically, um, this thing happened with my sister, and like it's just mad. Do you pity her? Do you pity her? And then Ambrosio's like, I really pity her, Rosario, I really do. And then she's like, Psych, um, I'm Matilda, actually, sorry. And then he's like, I pity you not. Get away from me, a woman <laughs> in the monastery. Suddenly, by the fact that she is a woman. Yeah, like he, um, he, he has so much sympathy for Rosario when he's Rosario, but then the second that. Uh, he's revealed to be Matilda. Yeah, and not even just that, but just, like, like the genuine sexual chemistry between him and Rosario before we know it's Matilda. Mm-hmm. Like, there are moments, you know, reading this where you're kind of like, is he gonna yeah. kiss a man? Is he gonna? Yeah. He might. Coming into it without any sort of prior knowledge to, to what the plot was gonna show me, I really was not expecting the... I am a woman, um, Father. I'm a woman. I was expecting like a like a, a gay confession. I'll admit, I really was, really was expecting that. Yeah, it really leads you to believe this. Yeah, and it does. The the role switching Matilda as Rosario and him kind of like experiencing this friendship, 
not just a deep friendship but like this this real like care for what he believes is a man I think it's, it's very I yeah. think it's interesting as well how he is a character you know he, he's sort of like Rosario slash Matilda as a character is very sort of duplicitousness and like deceit is very foundational to her but also not really I suppose I, I'm sort of like revising my argument as I'm making it <laughs> yeah. in that like in that like, like we were she's talking so duplicitous about, but not duplicitous yeah, at all also as we were saying that like she's like well she is I suppose duplicitous in the fact that she is literally a, a demon I guess like masquerading as a woman and she is temptation um, made in, incarnate but also he comes to her and is like hey I want you to do it. like we were like we were talking about earlier but I do think it's interesting like her the idea of sort of like the infiltration into the monastery as not just a devil you know not a devil a demon but a woman as well i think is just interesting in in the disguise of a man yeah and i think you know i was kind of saying earlier when i was kind of like oh like you know is he gonna kiss a man Mm -hmm. and kind of how kind of gay it feels Mm. i kind of also going back to my point previously it feels very heterosexual because he's does, so yeah. effeminate mm-hmm. he's so effeminized and like you know when, when well, there's he a kind and of Matilda... heterosexual consciousness to it for yeah, sure. yeah yeah and when he and matilda kind of like con- consummate their relationship and um it's kind of super disappointing yeah and you know there are a lot of reasons that it, it could be disappointing and one of them is premature ejaculation mm-hmm. <laughs> which i like to think of because if you read it like he has sex and you're kind of like you know that it's this kind of like building of tension and, oh my god it's so passionate oh my god they're so both so horny and, oh my god then they have sex and the next chapter it's like just these short staccato sentences it kind of all, consistently another gay thing kind of consistently starts with he 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 yeah um yeah um just affirming this like male presence um i think that's interesting as well especially in how like sex is depicted following um like when he has sex for the first time with matilda he's like filled with horror and melancholy and like terror and like trepidation after it and it's sort of this like like desire to like naturalize sex but not neither paint it in this sort of like oh you know he's suddenly so fulfilled after like having sex like he's suddenly so fulfilled mm. like he, he's, he can suddenly see like oh my god like this is what i've been needing to do like R- R- ambrosio doesn't see he, you know he's not like oh this is you know this is natural this is what i need to do like there is still like even in having sex it's sort of like because it's been repressed in him for so long it's just like a completely like warped um desire now and i think also in like premature I can't. I was, I was about to make a point. I've completely forgotten it now as well. Um, <laughs> in like premature ejaculation, um, I suppose is kind of representative of sex as a whole throughout the novel, as like not what it's not what it's not cracked it's, up not, to not be. Not what it's cracked up to and, be. But also, people be. should be allowed to have it. Yeah, not what it's cracked up to be. Just because of all the the repression the and the denial, and the kind of, yeah. yeah, repression around it. But also just because. And I was we were saying I was saying this to you the other day, how like it's just gonna be disappointing mm-hmm. when you have sex with a thirty year old virgin. Yep. Who's never even like not even just like not even just like a virgin, like never had sex, but like never even kissed. Never even kissed, or never even like masturbated or anything like that. Like he's gonna have no stamina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, gonna, just 
just thinking about it purely, you know, from 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 the game from perspective. The game perspective. He's gonna have no game. And so when you're reading this, this this kind of relationship between him and Rosario, him and Matilda, and this kind of like sexual tension that's building, and oh my god, it's so, and then it just turned out to be this kind of like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this kind of like nothing where they huh. both, but they both kind of roll over and uh, dissatisfied yep. and it's sort full of, of horror and terror. Yeah, and, and obviously we never find out whether he actually does ejaculate prematurely. But like the the you know as I was saying like the sentence structure changed like you get these really suddenly short sentences. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of clear shame and embarrassment, and it's kind of like, is this is this mirroring mm-hmm. <laughs> this kind of like just very disappointing sexual consummation which i think it is probably and uh yeah i i think, I think you make a convi- uh, convincing case for it and i believe you <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> yeah should we do your favorite subject you know talk a little bit about some incest <laughs> some incest well, it always has to end with incest there's always an always ending end. an ending note of uh, incest. always has to end with incest um and i think incest is quite curious curious i don't know why i sort of use curious in place of interesting because that's what i meant interesting because it's almost like uh like a hidden sin amongst the actual it's very sin, which, yeah it's like it's a bit like, is it eat it's like hidden beneath like the um it's like hidden beneath the like you know the sin of of rape it's like not only did you rape you did an incest as well so and that's hidden but amongst all the kind of like the the deception of how we even got to the monastery and like the sordid past and like the way he gets to the monastery, we should actually touch on this backstory just briefly before we get into this, is mm. is the... Uh, let me remember. Elvira... I don't... This, this I can't thing, remember that, this at film, all, so you better film, be confident. <laughs> <laughs> I... Okay, this, this is what I believe... This is what I believe happens. Elvira meets this dude who wants to marry her, whose father won't let her marry her. She already has a son? No, this is... Oh, yeah, I believe so. She already has a... No, she, no, no, no. I think this is the son... I think he was, like, created by the two of them, but then she, like, quickly leaves to go to yeah, the Caribbean, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, he gets left behind, yeah, and they think it. he's dead. That's it, that's it. So they have a son, and they they then have to flee because of this mean dad. Um, the, the, and the mar- she's too the Marquise, big M, big M. Um, wants Elvira gone. And so she has to leave her son behind, and she leaves him in the care of... Her someone, it doesn't really matter who, who basically just drops him off at the monastery. Yeah, she's like, she's like, take care of him. She's like, I will, and then immediately leaves him in the monastery. And there's like, sorry, your son died. Um, and so that's how he ended up at the monastery, and without anyone knowing like who he really was. And there are obvious parallels, as I was saying. It's very Oedipusy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there are obvious parallels throughout the whole novel, and we've touched on some of them already between the conflict between classical and Christian narrative traditions and kind of like the themes and the kind of references tell you a lot about what you're meant to be thinking Mm -hmm. and generally it's all terrible when it's when it's Christian that means kind of like impending doom when it's when it's kind of classical it also means sort of impending doom but just on an unprecedented scale. Yeah. Um, and kind of this is one of them. And 
sort of thinking about, you know, Ambrosio and Antonio sort of like a mirror for one another in terms of their innocence and they're so alike. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like... It's because your brother and sister, mate. It's because your brother and sister. It's because your brother and sister. But it's also like, you know, there's a sense that the narrative can't really separate them. I don't know what's about to come out of my mouth. Can't really separate them, like, from one another. Because there's this there's this sense that their their fates, their whole personalities, their ways of being are so similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so alike. And, and it recontextualizes his like lust as well as something that like because he tries to sort of explain it away so often it kind of like thematically recontextualizes it in in like by this you know it was bad the whole time mm. it was bad the whole time man yeah and it's interesting that also these parallels were, all, were also exclusively drawn between the male the, sorry the female lines of his family like his sister who for whom he's a mirror his mother who's elvira there's also an element of incest and i don't know if i'm reaching here but i think it's an interesting concept in my head <laughs> of like <laughs> of like how you know the picture the uh, of the Madonna who happens to be Matilda mm-hmm. <laughs> forgetting everyone's names um, you know Matilda has this picture commissioned and like snuck into the monastery for him to buy and then he's he's worshipping the picture of this Madonna um, and it's all very kind of like in the same vein of like this is a, a bad way to yeah, kind of hide, like, people. fuck what was I talking about <laughs> <laughs> yes she is well yeah um <laughs> um so like how it's this picture of the Madonna, the the Virgin Mother, the ultimate mother, the ultimate representation of feminine purity, who he kind of really he finds this kind of super strong, you know, inexpressible kind of he's drawn to it in this kind of inexpressible way. Um, this mother figure, like it's kind of in a way when he kind of ends up sleeping with Matilda and he kind of discovers that this is her portrait. He mm-hmm. knows at the time when mm-hmm. he sleeps with her that this is her portrait and he's been worshipping it and he's like, oh, of course, it makes sense because she's so hot. Like, that he's the fact that he's drawing this... The fact that there's this parallel drawn between a mother figure, an idolised woman, and Matilda mm-hmm. is kind of, like, also sort of uh, a way of enacting those incestuous desires which go beyond just like lust like mm-hmm. you were saying but also goes into the the fact that he a feels an affinity with f- women and also the fact that he has never known his mother mm-hmm. or any of his family mm. and kind of is like reaching out for that in in the only way he can which mm-hmm. at the time is for her tits yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> very true i'd never thought of uh, reading of it that way as well some crackers at the end. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. listeners, uh, apologies for the first half an hour. <laughs> we got there in the end. <laughs> We've got some actual theory. Um, Shall we touch on, for like, for like a couple of minutes, just the film, just mentioning insane points on the film. The first of which I want to mention is Rosario's mask is so scary. So fucking freaky. For he the record, we yeah. are talking about the 2011. Uh, Dominic Mole version. Mm-hmm. There are several versions. I did also watch the 1990 version, and that was 
equally crazy quite funny yeah there's a lot of like dry ice and red lighting <laughs> oh my favorite um but yeah no i really like the film actually i liked it as well i did think it was scary as well and i also mm. think the recontextualization of the incest which is uh vile in the book is somehow made even worse it's made much the... more dramatic in in the film yeah i think it's maybe even told slightly better because in the film like he has this birthmark it which looks like a hand. Elvira recognizes mm-hmm. when she finds him laying asleep. atop Antonia after having yeah. raped her. Yeah. So it's kind of like, and you know, he kills her, and with 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 her dying breath, she kind of says, "Matteo." Yeah. And it's like that's when he realizes, like, oh, <laughs> that was my pre-monk name. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Um, any more film points? The film points, the devil. Let's talk about the devil in the film. So at the beginning of the film... He's a slightly fruity... There's a... There's, there's a the film opens with, with this confession box um, scene with Vincent Cassell... Oh, shit, I forgot about this, actually. ...giving confession. And, well, I rewatched it today only to find out when it was set because the film sets it, interestingly, in... Uh, well, I mean... Uh, Rosa- <laughs> Ambrosio was left at the monastery in, like... 1594 or something so it's set 30 after that so like the I guess like the 1630s -hmm. which is 200 years obviously before it's actually set but and I was looking to find out because I knew I would talk about it yep and that's that's me talking about it so (laughs) I basically talked about it because I looked it up Um, but like anyway I watched the start of the film and it starts as I said (laughs) this confession box scene where Monk uh, Vince Cassell is uh, giving a uh, confession to this what we si- think is just a random character just to establish the fact that he's a monk I'm kind of talking about this character who's kind of confessing that he to acts of um, paedophilia yeah uh, against his against his niece who apparently has very sexy ankles um, and you know uh, we're meant to think and like initially it's interesting it's dub it's he's also hearing so much like lust on the daily from these like yeah he's lust on the daily and he's also like condemning them and being like it's it's just as simple as saying no you just gotta rein it in you gotta say no to the devil because as soon as you give him any power yeah yeah, exactly you let him in and obviously the the film then goes into the whole thing of like no that stuff's actually true you don't have to actively let him in he's just there and Mm -hmm. you weren't prepared and so we've got you um but then at the end uh, when the devil appears and uh, Monk Ambrosio is is wandering through the desert wastes, which is not something that happens in the book, but it's something that happens in the film, uh, the devil appears and it's that guy. And so you kind of have another layer, layer, layer when this uh, when you go back and watch it the second time, which I found quite interesting. Where it's like where when um, uh, when like you know they're having this conversation about like is it this simple to avoid? He's having it with the devil. Mm-hmm. Like so, so, so. He could, the devil really wins. Like, yeah. It looks like a cocky prick. Yeah, <laughs> he just gets in a in a last. Oh, well, that was pretty. You know, that was. Uh, so if you're right. Yeah. And then and fucks off. It's a good. It's a good film. You should watch it. It's very. It's very. Pro picks it is back. It is yeah. very, very. It's very. The cinematography is very beautiful. The way that I think that it it frames Antonia as well, I think, is really interesting in terms of like it doesn't kind of give in to. She doesn't mad. She doesn't like, die either. She goes mad, which I think is an interesting yeah, like, yeah, final yeah. fate for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And yeah, the way the way that it kind of frames her is sort of like, not necessarily as this kind of like, so naive. She's it's dangerous, but kind of like. It gives us hints of that by like framing it in very like fairy tale. Like there's loads of like very like um, 
uh, not overexposed lighting, but like where there's like this kind of constant Light glowing and saturated, warm. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. And, and whilst like, like horror strings and... play behind it. It's yeah. very clever. Very <laughs> it clever. Is. It's, a, it's, a, it's a very good film and I appreciate it greatly. Did not like Lorenzo's hair. We'll no, point that out. She didn't. She... Very, <laughs> made it very, very known emphatic and uh, also Laurenella was not as funny no she was just there she was just there uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is our that concludes that, the that month is our te- that is our takeaway from the film we will wrap it up now because we are on f- two and a half hours woohoo <laughs> it is oh god it's nearly my bedtime okay <laughs> um, yeah next week it'll be week, Italian yeah, not, next, not next week Whenever, whenever. We... Next time. Yep. Next time. Two weeks from now, we will be doing Anne Radcliffe's *The Italian*. Please read along. Send us your thoughts. Um, I will, as last week, leave a link in the description for our email. Please write to us. Join in. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Tell us what you think of this book. Tell us what you think of *The Castle of Otranto*. Tell us what you think of any book. And tell us what you think you'd like us to read. Um, and uh, please don't be intimidated by our uh, very critical and very uh, cited readings, um, which, uh, which is... have been probably completely lost by our mess well, of a plan I... <laughs> and <laughs> stumbling through. Well, I was just about to say that this is anything but extremely, yeah, yeah. extremely critical and very cited. <laughs> And um, is at most sort of a uh, a collection of funny thoughts. About a collection it. of music. So send thoughts. us yours. Yeah, send us yours. Yeah, we enjoy doing this, and um, that's that. So we will, so we will be back basically. Yeah, you can't stop us. <laughs> so yeah, the Italian by Anne Radcliffe. We will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, stay spooky. And goodbye. And goodbye. <laughs> Keep us stopped